that place is harming people. People are arriving in this country already traumatised, already having real issues with their well-being. There are people in there who are expressing suicide ideations for the first time in their lives. That place is harming people and it needs to close. Someone said that it was the most that they'd suffered in their whole life during their time in Napier Barracks. Which says something, doesn't mm. it? You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. listening to this podcast episode thinking that refugee camps only exist in countries far away, today we're talking about one that is right here in the UK, Napier Barracks. Up on a hill in the seaside town of Folkestone in Kent lies a disused army barracks built in 1794. Its red brick buildings surrounded by 10 foot fences topped with barbed wire were actually due for demolition in 2021 until our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, decided to repurpose the barracks as accommodation for asylum seekers. In the last few months, since September 2020, Napier Barracks has become home to 400 people who have recently arrived in the UK in the hope of finding safety. Instead, they find themselves living in conditions described as inhumane and deeply concerning by the many bodies of experts, groups and individuals who call for the camp's immediate closure. Something disturbing is unfolding in this coastal town right now, and I believe that this should be at the forefront of our attention. In this episode, I talk to two people. First of all, a resident of Napier, who I will refer to as S, in order to protect his identity. He is a poet from Yemen, and I would like to start by sharing a very important letter that he wrote from inside Napier Barracks. This letter, from an asylum seeker, from Folkestone, from detention camp, I'm from Yemen. I write amid the sounds of rain and the cold of winter. To everyone who is interested, I want to say, please help me now. I will help you later. We don't want anything. We just come here looking for safety, for freedom, for justice. We come because we hear that all are equal here. We live one life. Let's support each other. I am a person like you. I am not dangerous. I am no different. I feel like you. I love like you. Thanks for supporting me. Thanks for helping me. We go through difficult days. You make it easier. 
I will never forget your support. I will always remember that. After reading his letter, S and I exchanged some messages and became friends. We spoke on the phone two days after he was transferred from the barracks and into temporary hotel accommodation in London, having been one of the first residents of Napier and spending over four months there. Uh, I am with 30 people transferred to London in hotel. It's important to note that when we refer to hotel accommodation in this episode, we're not talking about the kind of experience that you might have whilst on holiday. The conditions inside these hotels are often substandard, but they are a significant step up from Napier. I'll let S explain more. Do you think that the situation in the hotel is better than Napier? Are you are you happier in the hotel? Yeah, yeah, in the hotel it's better, yeah. Okay, good. Better. I say one thing, you can understand what's, what's different. When I come here, I sleep. Uh, for four months... I, I can't sleep, really. Really. Mm-hmm. For months, I can't sleep. Just two hours, and wake up, uh, listen, other things, listen, sounds, listen. But two days now, really, I sleep. That makes me so happy uh, to hear. I think when you have sleep, you feel like a new person, right? And when you don't have sleep, mm-hmm. it's the worst thing. Do you have your own room? In hotel? Yeah. Or in no, no, just me in uh, one room, so one person. Good. Also the toilet inside in the room. It's uh, good. All thing is good. Brilliant. Yes. That's very good. I know the audio isn't great on this call, but hopefully you got that. After four months, finally, S has been able to sleep properly. My English is very weak, but I, I try. Uh, Your English yeah. is very good. <laughs> uh, it, you, you, um, many people maybe understand. Uh, yeah. 60% maybe, huh? no, 50%? I, I understand 100%. <laughs> no, no, this is uh, too much, I think. <laughs> you say that, but uh, you want to support me, you, you say that. No, honestly. I'm sharing this call with you and S's words because even though he has now been transferred, he feels strongly about advocating on behalf of those still inside Napier. We need help, give information about other people there. Mm-hmm. You understand me? Yeah. So no. even if you are not there, you still want to help the people who are in the barracks. Yeah. I want help also with you, with uh, speak about video, about anything I can do, I will do for other people there. Do you have everything that you need? I live in London. Maybe if there's anything that you need, I can help you. Any clothes or food or anything. <sighs> Really, yes, I mean, I, I want to say something. Believe me, believe me. When you listen me, when you uh, support me, just just talking, you want help. This is enough for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you for this feeling. Are you feeling healthy and well, or do you know if you are COVID positive or negative? No, before f- uh, five days in Nibirbara, People from NHS coming to there, and I make test. I have negative for COVID. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. So you you feel healthy. You feel good. 
You are from uh, London or from other uh, city? I'm from Kent, actually. So, Not Folkestone, uh, but Kent. yeah, <laughs> I am. I'm from between Folkestone and London in the middle. That's where I'm from. Yeah, I want to say something. The England, it's a good country. Also, the people, many people, it's very friendly in England. Just somehow a little wrong from people in the government. It's just a little, but... Almost all thing is very nice, very good in England. I like this country. I like also the people here. Thank you very much. If you didn't quite catch that, S said that apart from a few people in the government, he has found almost all people here in England to be good people. This podcast episode was inspired by his dedication to advocate for his fellow residents of Napier. If you need anything, I will make video or sounds or uh, uh, write any words I am ready uh, to work with you amazing let's do that together okay thank you so Mm -hmm. much I am also very happy to thank you thank you Yasmin for all things thank you I am very happy to speak with you let's speak again soon okay yeah 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 of course yeah Now we'll hear from Maddy, the founder of Humans for Rights Network, who has been tirelessly collecting and documenting testimonials and evidence from Napier's residents, including S, in the hope of getting their voices heard and their basic human needs met. My name's Maddy and I run an organisation called Humans for Rights Network. I started the organisation, I think, about three years ago because I spent a lot of time in Dunkirk, particularly back in 2015 and 2016. And the work that I'm like particularly focused on and concerned about is people's basic rights and that there is such a lack of accountability in terms of the rights abuses that asylum seekers and refugees experience every day. Tell me a little bit about your involvement with Napier Barracks and how that's come about in the last few months. So our involvement started... I guess kind of normally the focus is on like northern France and then obviously the pandemic started and then kind of just became immediately more involved in the situation in the UK. As soon as it became clear that Napier Barracks was going to open and that it was opening, I just I thought this is a refugee camp ultimately like this is a combination of a refugee camp and a detention camp. And pretty much the first of its kind that we've seen like that in the UK, right? Absolutely. I mean, the UK has a long history of hostility. It it itself would say we're welcoming to refugees, but only a very, very small number Mm. of very so-called deserved people. But the use of camps... I mean, even the government's calling it a camp now. There is unprecedented word of the year. And we haven't seen that before. And it's a really terrifying development. So can you give a little bit of an overview of what the conditions are like in Napier and what you've been hearing coming out of there? So we're four months in, aren't we, to it kind of existing and being home to 400 asylum seekers. Uh What are you hearing about life there? So it's there's three. Napier's the one that I've got the most sort of experience of, certainly, but you've got three. There's Penali, which is in Wales, and then there's a much smaller site, which is in Norfolk. So it's, as you say, it's 400 men. It's a disused 
army barracks. So the narrative that our servicemen and women have been living in there and it's been fine is not correct. I actually had a conversation with a friend's mother the other day who's very involved in the church locally. And she knows she was the former chaplain of the barracks. And she says for years, it has been known as as a place that is appalling in terms of its accommodation. I had a couple of comments. I actually used the hashtag Napier Barracks, I think on Instagram or something. And it evoked a couple of comments from people that had said, you know, I've, I've been there. I've stayed there. It's not that bad. You choose to join the army. You get paid to join the army. You don't choose to be a refugee. It's not the same thing. Exactly. So you've got people living in dormitories of 28 people. So you'll have 14 people on one side. There's a corridor that divides and then there's another building with 14 people. So 28 people share two toilets and showers. You know, this is happening amongst the backdrop of a pandemic. They're open dormitories. People are hanging sheets, essentially. Mm -hmm. I've seen photographs that people have sent us and they're tiny sort of three inch mattresses on the floor. You know, you eat what you're, what you're told to eat. There's no real of consideration of people's cultural or dietary needs at all. It's cold. People aren't being provided with the kind of necessary material items, such as clothing for the weather and being winter. There's one nurse who's on site Monday to Friday who, you know, we've spoken to people who are survivors of torture, trafficking and modern slavery, many of which are really struggling with mental health. One of the biggest things that we've heard from people is a total inability to sleep. There's 400 people. There's a lot of noise at night. There's a lot of people becoming distressed. I've just had a text actually from somebody who has just been moved out. So they've just moved a small number of people out, which I guess we can talk about Mm -hmm. in a bit. I messaged him this morning. He's just messaged me and he said he's literally just woken up because he basically feels like he hasn't slept in four months. There has been a lot of people self-harming and there have been a lot of suicide attempts and another thing that we've heard from people is essentially people are really triggered because this situation is reminding people of camps that they have escaped of conflict that they have escaped and they're really afraid of going to sleep at night because they're afraid of what might happen if they go to sleep there's just no meeting of people's basic needs going on at all access to organizations is really really restricted if at all i mean for weeks now it's been no no access at all And add to that the utterly appalling, aggressive, racist treatment from the staff. Threats being made to people about speaking out about the conditions. You know, this will affect your asylum claim. We will tell the Home Office. You will end up on the blacklist. That shocks me the most, weaponising their asylum claims against them. The thing that people are most holding on to. I mean, that's savage. And you'd think that the people working there would have some kind of empathy. I asked S this question about the staff as well. So the staff, and I said, please speak with me kindly. Mm-hmm. When you speak, please smile. If you smile, I smile. If you mm-hmm. speak kindly, speak kindly. Mm-hmm. This is not good. They're security guards, which I'm not suggesting that all security guards are people that would behave in that way, but who knows? Who are they? Where did they come from? What training have they had? What recruitment process did they go through? The company that runs Napier Barracks is called Clear Springs Ready Homes, and they've subcontracted out to another company. When if you look for them, you can't find any Mm. financial information about them because they say they don't make enough money. Who are all of these people who have been put in a position of managing an accommodation like that and being responsible for the welfare of 400 people who are receiving no information? 
about their claim and no information more generally, which I think really opens up the space for this manipulation and these threats. I'd like to cut in here with a little more information about the company managing the barracks. Clear Springs Ready Homes are an Essex-based private company who have been contracted by the UK government to provide and run both Napier Barracks and Penali Barracks in Wales. Whilst hundreds of vulnerable residents continue to live in these unacceptable conditions in their accommodations, the owner of Clear Springs stands to receive multi-million pound benefits from these contracts, worth £1 billion, paid for by the UK taxpayer. Whilst researching this podcast, I was unable to find a statement from Clear Springs on this. So things have escalated at Napier quite dramatically in the last few weeks, especially, right? What's happened and why is that? From talking to guys that are in there of kind of the main things that they're saying, there's been a number of protests and also some people on hunger strike. And the kind of core message within that has been, we don't know what's happening. We don't know how long we're going to be here and you're not giving us any information. And also that the food is really appalling. So basically what's happened in the past few weeks is that there's been two things, I think, that really are key. Firstly, is there's a COVID outbreak. So... Two weeks ago, it was discovered that there were numbers of quite hazy. So getting official data and information is proving impossible. But it was said that there were six cases. So I spoke to some guys inside and they then actually said it was 15 people had tested positive and that those 15 people were not being supported to quarantine or isolate in any way. So everybody who was in the barracks at that time was and still is very concerned about catching the virus and what that would mean. So there was 15 cases and then it took, I think, a few more days for Clear Springs to do anything. I think it's probably four or five days where you've got people eating. One man said to me, you know, you can catch it in the dining hall, you can catch it in the toilet, you can catch it in your dormitory. Like it's it's everywhere. Yeah, you're queuing up for food in close proximity. I saw a picture of eight people's tests results. I think four of them were positive, four of them negative, negative. but they're all sleeping in the same, in the same room. tiny room. And that's recent. So th- th- that photograph that you're talking about, that's yesterday. Again, it's also like important to say that from the beginning, people have been saying, you're telling me to socially distance, but you put food in the dining hall for one hour every day and all 400 of us all have to queue up at the same time and we can't socially distance. We're all using the same toilets. There's no soap in the toilets. The cleaners won't come in and clean. There have been cases in there before, which again have been really badly managed. So 15 cases... And then very quickly, that 15 turned into over 100. Again, these numbers are just arbitrary almost. It's what people are being told mm-hmm. are supposed to here is official data that's coming from the Home Office or from Clear Springs. So they decided, right, we're going to lock the place down completely. Nobody's allowed in or out. And then it was kind of like, OK, now what? Some people were isolating inside, but others won't. They don't have mm-hmm. the ability to isolate people in that way. So it has continued, as you just described with that photograph, to to infect people ultimately. Yeah. And, you know, not just about socially distancing and isolating, but what about actually getting support and and treatment as well and being looked after? Like you said, there's one nurse and 100 people with COVID and vulnerable people and some of them over 50. Well, the the second point I was going to make was about mental health. 
We received information two weeks ago now that there were 22 people on Suicide Watch and that those 22 people, and I spoke to one of the men who was part of the group and he said up until the hunger strikes and the protests, yes, we were held in a room together and that we were being watched over by a security guard and that all they give us is sleeping tablets to make us sleep all day. There seems to be a real pattern of people going to see the nurse and saying, I'm feeling depressed and then being given antidepressants or sleeping tablets. And of these two things happening simultaneously, there are people inside who, as you say, are either very unwell with COVID or unwell with COVID and their mental health. Mm. And also people who are very unwell with their mental health and morale is incredibly low. Over the weekend, they began to move a small group of people out who are older, as you said, And then last night, they have moved another group of people out into two other hotels where they've been told they've got to self-isolate for 10 days. And sorry, is that people who have COVID? It's unclear because I think part of what is so difficult about this situation is getting cold, hard facts from management and home office about Mm. what's really going on is ultimately there are no cold, hard facts because it's incredibly badly managed Mm -hmm. i spoke to a guy last night who said i'm in a hotel and i'm positive and i thought that's okay i didn't realize that that's what was was happening i thought the plan was that it would be people with negative tests but honestly they haven't tested everybody what would be ideal is that they are moving people as fast as possible out of the barracks and like permanently into hotels right so do you think that that is kind of what is happening or does it look like those people who are in hotels will be going back or do we just not have that information we don't have the information i would be concerned that there is a possibility that either some people will be moved back in or that certainly there will be other people who are moved in there's between 90 and 100 hotels across the country at the moment To be clear, not all of which are providing adequate accommodation to people at all. Still not a good option. No, but it's, you know, it's a temporary solution. It's a step up, basically. Napier is the worst possible scenario right now in the Mm -hmm. UK in terms of accommodation. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that it has been said that this move of people into hotels is temporary is really concerning. Does that mean people are temporarily isolating and then they'll be returned? I don't know is the short answer, but Priti Patel said today, we are following public health guidance and there is no issue with the barracks. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially she is still publicly suggesting that this is suitable accommodation for people. Ultimately, I think that they have no current plan to sort of hold their hands up and say, right, this clearly is unsafe and it doesn't work. So is that ultimately what you're calling for, to get the Home Office to take some accountability for what is happening? What would be best case scenario, do you think, for the situation at Napier? It's closed. People are moved after undergoing vulnerability assessments as to their specific needs, both physically and mentally, and they're moved to community-based dispersal accommodation where they can access the support that they need. I totally recognise that in the middle of a pandemic, it may be challenging, but that doesn't mean that people can't be moved into better accommodation, even if that is a hotel temporarily, but as I say, with that support. And there's absolutely no way there's any other solution to this 
than the closure of the barracks and no more refugee camps in the UK, thanks. <laughs> Basically. Quite simple. It's really. quite simple. Quite simple. Yeah, no, I, I hear you and I'm glad that you just like so clearly expressed that. I'm just pouring another cuppa. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that NGOs and people who are wanting to support the guys in the barracks have basically been frustrated and blocked at every attempt I know that within the worldwide tribe community there's so many people that want to donate stuff there's people that want to donate money there's people that want to help these guys in some way however they can even my little foster brother was like let me cook for them Mm -hmm. on hearing that they could only have sandwiches but there's no option or opportunity to really do that or support them the first time we went to the barracks we had the police called on us and that's not an uncommon experience that's happened to others as well we were stood in the park outside with a small group of people all distanced the police were called the police came to talk to me and we we had quite a long conversation and essentially the guidance around voluntary organizations is as long as you're following social distancing you are allowed to continue to do what you're doing and they refused initially to acknowledge that um, and said that we shouldn't be there yeah that kind of hostility is something that a lot of groups are feeling Do you think that's coming from the top, like the Home Office or the local people calling the police or the police force in Folkestone themselves? The accommodation management called the police on us. Okay. Where the instruction comes from to do that, I don't know. The way I read this, and this is both because of experience in the barracks, but also in experience in in other hotels, is we don't want them to see what's going on. It really does feel like that. But they don't want any additional scrutiny on the situation. So there's a cover-up happening here, basically. That's what it would suggest to me. From lots of different angles. And that's why I feel that the best thing that we can actually do as people wanting to support the guys in in the camp is to amplify their Mm -hmm. voices, to get these voices heard through their protests, their hunger strikes. It seems to me many of the residents want to have their stories and their plight heard. So hopefully we can do that a little bit through this podcast and through continuing to advocate. We were sent some videos last week of people inside who basically written some banners and they stood near the gate and they were like shouting their Mm -hmm. messages and they'd hung the uh, banners over the gate and the police parked a van in front of the banner so nobody could see. I heard about that too. That's why this is the most important thing that we can do right now is share these stories, amplify those messages. Another important story to add in here is that just last week, photographer Andy Aitchison was actually arrested after documenting a demonstration outside the barracks. Five police officers arrived at his home nearby six hours after the protest, arresting him in front of his children and confiscating his mobile phone and memory card containing the photos. All charges against him have since been dropped after a media freedom alert was filed by the International Federation of Journalists. We got in contact through um, a testimonial that you took. I'm going to read it out, actually. Just three lines. Let me see. Prisoners in prisons know how long they will be detained. We do not. Prisoners know why they are being detained. We do not. And we have come to seek protection. So that was the quote that Maddie took from a resident of the camp, right? Yeah. 
And that's one of, of many testimonials and stories that you've been, been hearing. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yes. As I said before, we meet with people and they share with us what's happening inside and what's happening to them and their experiences. And every single time that must be done under the sort of strictest anonymity and that they're very concerned about what would happen if their identities were known. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are speaking out directly themselves. But I know that the reason why people inside sometimes don't feel like they can do that is partly to do with the risk that they feel Mm -hmm. that that poses them. And that fear is valid, right? Because haven't you actually seen that people have had repercussions from sharing stories or testimonials? There was a video that a news channel put out before Christmas where it was like a short documentary of the situation in Napier. And they filmed, I think it was two guys from behind. And those guys are now having a truly horrific time inside and are being called things like snitch and are being singled out by the management ultimately and it's very explicitly you know they've said if you talk to the media this will be a problem for your Mm -hmm. claim for example the reality is like it it isn't it won't be but that's irrelevant in the sense that these threats is like the biggest threat you can make someone ultimately yeah it's their biggest fear it would be good to talk a little bit about who these guys are from your experience. Is there a general demographic or are people coming from all over? The people that we've spoken to are from Yemen, Syria and Sudan. Okay. There are people in there from Eritrea, Ethiopia, mm-hmm. Syria, Iran, Iraq. So it's, yeah, it's people really from from all over. And... For the most part, are they people that have recently arrived to the UK? Yeah, most people that we've spoken to who have been in Napier, and obviously we haven't spoken to everybody, but it is certainly people who have been here for six, seven, eight, nine months. When we met with the first people in November, you know, there were some people that had said, oh, we've been here for like two or three months. (laughs) So people would have come over, possibly been placed in a hotel for two months, six weeks, three months. And then they would be told, you're leaving two hours, an hour in the morning, very quick, you're going. And a lot of what we heard from people is that they didn't know where they were going. So they'd just be told, get in the van, you're going, no idea where. And then next thing they know, they would arrive outside a camp and be told to go inside. One of the things that I found really sort of distressing about it is where it is you can see the English channel and if you think the majority of the people who we're speaking to who are in there have passed through the horrors Mm. of northern France Mm -hmm. many probably not wanting to speak for people I would imagine and I guess I can say from my experience of talking to people in France and spending time there that this end to people perhaps feels like the end and then to find yourself in a camp yeah I I really noticed that with people that I've got to know in France there's still a level of hope they're still on their journey and they're still hoping that the next stage will bring something better but when you arrive to the UK that's often when your mental health Mm -hmm. issues come to the surface Mm -hmm. because you feel like 
well, what next? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm here now. And at that point, you kind of allow yourself to feel, I guess, a lot of those feelings are coming to the surface for these guys that have come to the end of their journey, hoping that this would be what they've been working towards for up to a year, maybe longer. And actually, the situation that they find themselves in is is not what they'd hoped it would be. A lot worse, in fact. And no wonder that mental health issues are so prevalent in the camp. Someone told me, a woman who has spent many years in the UK as an claimed asylum here, that claiming asylum in the UK is like an ongoing trauma. It's an extra trauma, it's an extra layer on top of what you've already experienced. Our immigration policy is called the hostile environment, right? It's really insidious and unpleasant and inhumane. And Um, it really does come through. You know, you're guilty until proven innocent when it comes to your asylum claim. I've really seen that even with my little brothers who are kids. Mm. The way that you're questioned, the way that you're interrogated about traumatic experiences in your life is, is, yeah, very brutal, in fact. And you really need to prove that you have a valid claim and that is not an easy process to go through it's like one journey comes to an end when you make it to the uk and and the whole other journey begins it's like proving that you are deserved of safety because that's really what it's about at the core as humans everybody just really wants to be Mm -hmm. safe and to live a free life are you hearing that people in the camp are having their asylum interviews no no okay. one. I've heard no one say that. There's people who still haven't got solicitors. I mean, obviously, accessing legal advice and legal representation is is a challenge wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And it's always a, been a slow process in the UK to get your asylum claim. But yeah. generally, you will have your yeah. first interview in the first few weeks and months of you arriving. But it doesn't sound like that's happening. People haven't even had a letter to say we're processing your claim or any communication whatsoever more we often than not you as nothing a as nothing an it's just stay here indefinitely maddie and i asked Esther this question when we went to visit him and bring him his vitamin c and have you had interview for asylum yet or not yet no. but do you have a lawyer uh not yet as I said earlier, the message that was coming and has been coming from the guys inside who've been involved in the protest has been, how long are we here? Why are we here? What's going on? You know, please tell us what's happening with our with our claims. You know, that's such an important point that we recognise being locked down at the moment during COVID and in a very different scenario, yeah. what it feels like when you don't know mm-hmm. that there is an end in sight, mm-hmm. right? And for these guys, you know, maybe if they knew that they would be there until their asylum claim was processed and that would take approximately this amount of time, yeah. you could maybe get your head around the situation. Yeah. But the fact that there is just no information for people... T- to be placed in an old army camp with barbed wire on the top of the fence and the gates locked. I think that's something to raise as well, that, you know, when I first went to the camp, people were allowed to leave. They weren't locked in. You know, the Home Office cannot enforce people to stay. It's not a prison. So they were allowed to leave. But at that point, they were too fearful because of the pressure and the threats from right-wing groups. But now they are locked in due to this COVID outbreak and can't actually leave, right? Yeah, that's it. So when we started visiting, people were allowed to leave once a day. 
But the reason why many didn't, just to be clear on that point, is that Napier has not only caught the attention of human rights organisations and pro-migrant groups wanting to support the residents, but also the very opposite. The last few months have seen many far-right extremists setting up camp outside the gates, ready to intimidate and threaten the residents should they leave the barracks. S shared his experience of this with me. One time or two times go to Tesco. Maybe go in car, open the window. Fuck, fuck. Really? (laughs) So people in the area, in Folkestone... Yeah, but not all. Not all. I think half some people, it's Mm. nice. Not all. As I mentioned, Maddie and I actually went to meet S outside his hotel after his isolation period. His words reiterate a lot of what we've heard from Maddie so far. So how long were you there for in the barracks? From 20 September. So you were one of the first people? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And what was your experience like there? Bad? No, very bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Very bad. It's sure, very bad. The staff? The food, uh, the staff, the, the sleep. You can't sleep almost time. You can't sleep just one hour, two hours and wake up. Yeah. Too many people sleeping together. Yeah. And in 14, COVID... In one big room, 14 people. Uh, two bathrooms uh, for 20 people. Two, just. Also, when you want to go outside, um, <laughs> you can't... So when you moved from Napier to the hotel, you were happy? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Now it's a bit better. Very bitter than camp. Mm. So when did you arrive in England? Uh, 26th in July. Sixth month, yeah. What was your job in Yemen? Sales. Sales? Or sales. sales. Yeah. S went on to tell us heartbreaking stories about what had happened to him in Yemen for him to have to leave the country. He showed us pictures as he talked, telling us a story about the death of his cousin. In hospital. Yeah. Uh, this after one he after one years he when he died he yeah died. after one years he died the people but uh, remember remember yeah. yeah like a funeral yeah like this like, like this yeah mm-hmm. he then talked about his journey to get to the UK and the many dangers that he faced along the way including spending a month in prison in Mali take the phone take the money and this was in Mali yeah and this is in Algeria Algeria near yeah. Mali. Near Mali. Yeah, uh-huh. Police Mali saw me also take the prison one Thank month you. there, yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't help but feel that after all he had been through, he is a hero who deserved to be welcomed as such. Unfortunately, that is not the case. We parted ways with these final words. Okay, nice oh, to meet you. So I am nice very happy so to nice meet you. Me. I am very happy. Well, we, we, I have two friends like you. Let's go back to my conversation with Maddie. One last question that I know will come up on Instagram. Can you just speak to the question of why there's only men in this camp and why there are so many men? I know it's an annoying question. <laughs> um, I want to um, to speak to it because I know that it might come up for some people who are listening. There are women and children and families in hotels and in accommodations mm-hmm. across the country. So it's not just young men who claim asylum in the UK. I mean, the the Home Office is truly insidious and clearly has no regard for human rights or human dignity. But putting young children and families into an army camp, I think, would 
be a whole nother level. A whole nother level. <laughs> that being said, there were some women and I believe children in the Norfolk site. It's a slightly different setup. Mm-hmm. Every place that people come from, there will be a different reason why people will need to leave. You know, for example, if you are Eritrean, forced military conscription. Mm-hmm. Often it's young men who are making that journey or older men. You know, there are men in there who have wives and children back in their countries or near those countries in refugee camps who they will be applying to reunite with. It's often these men that are specifically persecuted in their countries, right? And making the journey to the UK is no No. easy feat physically, mentally, emotionally. It's just people who are the strongest. I hate this conversation about deserved and undeserved. You know, I almost don't even want to like buy into it. It's like people need safety, people need protection, people need a place to live, they need a life. All people. All people. Who are you to decide who's deserved or not? I'm really glad that you said that. That's a very, very good point. It's really important to sort of think about the context of what's going on here in that you know, you've got Napier, you've got Penali, and there's this other site in Norfolk. I had a rumour today that there may be another site opening soon in Yorkshire. True or not, I don't know. You've got the potential use of some land near a little village on the edge of the A303 in Hampshire where they want to build a camp. Like a tented like cabins. It's a bit of MOD wasteland and they want to, to turn it into a camp for five hundred men and I just I think it's absolutely vital that we recognize where the home office is trying to get to that this is about ensuring that Napier and Penali and the site in Norfolk are closed down and people are moved out into suitable accommodation and supported and their asylum claims are processed quickly but that also there are no more of these yeah, I just really appreciate you for taking the time to, to talk this through because for me right now it just feels like this is right here you know I grew up in Kent this is happening here it was one thing going to France going to Greece but this is in the UK and everybody in the UK needs to know that this is happening so that we can advocate for it to stop. We mobilised as as citizens in response to what was happening in France and Greece and Serbia and Italy and all across Europe, France particularly, you know, a lot of people said, oh, it's on my doorstep. Like, it's really on your doorstep now, you know. Yeah, so pay attention. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Maddie. You're awesome. Thanks for having me. Two days after Maddie and I recorded this conversation, disaster struck at Napier when a serious fire broke out. Thankfully, none of the residents were physically harmed in the fire, and the cause remains unknown. That same day, Home Secretary Priti Patel issued the following statement. The damage and destruction at Napier Barracks is not only appalling, but deeply offensive to the taxpayers of this country who are providing this accommodation whilst asylum claims are being processed. This type of action will not be tolerated and the Home Office will support the police to take robust action against those vandalising property, threatening staff and putting lives at risk. The site has previously accommodated our brave soldiers and army personnel. It is an insult to say that it is not good enough for these individuals. I am fixing our broken asylum system and will be bringing forward legislation this year to deliver on that commitment. Priti Patel, Home Secretary. I caught up with Maddie to get her thoughts on the fire and bring us up to date on the situation in Napier. 
I think it's really important that none of us comment on exactly what happened because we don't know know. what happened. What I do know is that it was very distressing for everybody and as a result of it, since Friday the 29th, there's been intermittent electricity in all the blocks. There has been periods of time without any food, drinking water. We attempted to deliver 250 meals to the camp with water on Saturday the 30th because on Friday night we were receiving messages from people saying they hadn't had water or food that was blocked at the gate by security it's freezing cold you know electricity hot water heating is intermittent obviously there's at least one dormitory that's being destroyed so we did hear and were sent images of people sharing beds which let's remember there's still an active covid outbreak inside um someone has been taken to hospital overnight with very severe covid who was unable to breathe we're still trying to find out how he is and where he is and who he is like things are deteriorating day by day in terms of people's physical and mental well-being especially those couple of days after the fire people were incredibly distressed by that i've fled a war zone and suddenly there's sirens and emergency vehicles and buildings on fire and no one's helping us and the fact that the home office has said since that fire i quote at the bottom of every article that they're asked to comment on it is safe and suitable accommodation and it's just becoming beyond shocking that they can just continue to perpetuate that pretty patel on the day of the fire made a public statement saying that it was insulting to taxpayers i mean my Mm -hmm. view is it's insulting that you're holding survivors of torture and trafficking and people seeking refuge in a prison camp and she mentioned our brave soldiers Soldiers, i mean napier barracks is not being used by the mod to accommodate servicemen and women for years and years and years it's been sitting there falling into disrepair and then so last week some other people have been transferred out which is great there's been some positive moves off the back of some amazing work that various solicitors and organizations have done in evidence gathering and however i then received a message from someone inside saying we've now all been told that we have to remain in our dormitories for five days and if anybody mixes outside that will reset the clock back to 10 days you know people have been sleeping with the doors open of the dormitories because they're so concerned about catching covid freezing cold doors wide open in no january heating, yeah, not no heating and now you're confining everybody to the dormitories regardless of covid you know how that's going to affect people's mental health i would like to leave you today with a poem written by s about napier barracks whilst he was there this is him reading it in arabic and maddie reading the english translation Is it a jail or is it a prison or is it a detention centre? The situation is no longer tolerable and the mind is stricken with a vibration. We do not know. They told us it was a shelter and residence for us. They said it to us with confidence and pride, but nothing suggests that. We started to lose the sense of security. We even lost confidence in ourselves. Scary barriers and thoughts come from afar. There is no outlet for us but a yard surrounded by iron walls. The days pass as before, nothing new, nothing new. Between meals and sleep, no activities, no classes or lessons, every day the same ritual. We are tired, our souls are narrowed. Our fear was increased by the news we hear about a new strain of the virus. Sleep deserts our eyes, insomnia, restless and alerted. So what can we do for the residents of Napier? 
This is the question that I've been battling with, whilst nothing and no one can go in or out of the camp. Whilst donations of physical stuff, food and money remains difficult to get to the residents, there is one clear action that we can take. Amplify their voices. Tell five people about the camp. Tell one person. Share this podcast on your story, on your feed, with your family, with your friends. Napier and Penali must close and there must be no more camps of this kind. I have shared a petition to this effect in my Instagram bio at the Worldwide Tribe and in the show notes. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or hoodie or donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. Shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.